Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are going to continue our study of the book of Romans together. Uh, We began back in the middle of August walking through Romans chapters 1 through 3 in a series that we've called Good News, and this is historically epic good news because it talks about how sinful people like you and me can be reconciled to a holy God through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome many, many years ago, 2,000 years ago, and God preserved it so that you and I could read it today and could understand how we might see a relationship with God established and grow in that relationship. And so I'm very excited for us today to look in now our sixth installment in this series as we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. But before I look at those verses and before we look at those together, I want to reflect on life just a little bit with everybody here. And I want to reflect about uh, taking a trip. And in our household, the Robinson household, there is a place that we like to go, and that is Colorado, especially in the summertime. Now, the reason why we like to go to Colorado in the summertime is, first of all, because we live in Oklahoma. Um, and in July in Colorado is really nice. Y'all ought to try it sometime. It's really nice out there. Uh, and we, we love to just get away for a few days to the mountains in Colorado. And, and the other reason why we love it is because there's mountains there. It's just this, this beautiful place. And so every year when we have the opportunity to go to Colorado, we would consider that good news uh, that we get to go to Colorado. Now, to get to Colorado, though, is a little bit of an adventure. Uh, To get to Colorado from Norman requires a trip, and most of the time, we make that trip in the car. Uh, Now, when we make that trip in the car, my wife, myself, and our eight-year-old son, there is a phrase that is often repeated in the journey from Norman to Colorado. Does anybody want to guess what that phrase is? You guys have traveled with us. Uh, Are we there yet? You know, sometimes we hear that phrase when we pass the Moore Warren Theater. Um, Sometimes we hear that phrase when we hit the Kansas Turnpike. Uh, Sometimes, if we're lucky, we hear it when we cross the Colorado state line and we see the big welcome to Colorado. But really and truly, all of those times that we we, we hear that phrase, we are many, many miles from our destination. Um, And I won't tell you who in our family is asking that question. But I will tell you that if I wasn't driving, I'd probably be asking it as well. Uh, The good news is where we're going, but getting there is a little bit of a process. You know, I share that with you today because for the last number of weeks, we have been in this series that we have called Good News. And for the last number of weeks, you know, if you've been here the last three Sundays, we've been looking at the sinfulness of humanity. And as we have walked week in, week out with how humans are sinful and separated from God, humans are sinful and separated from God, humans are sinful and separated from God, and now in the fourth week of that movement, you might have turned to your neighbor and said, good news, are we there yet? Well, good news, we're almost there. But before we get there, we need to continue this road trip, continue this journey through Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. It's important for us to understand the sinfulness of humanity before we can appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. 
And so we've been walking through these sections of God's Word. But William Newell, in his commentary on the book of Romans, says it this way. He says, It is no kindness but a terrible wrong to hide from a criminal the sentence that must surely overtake him unless pardoned. For a physician to conceal from a patient a cancer that will destroy him unless quickly removed. For one acquainted with the hidden pitfalls of a path he beholds someone taking, not to warn him of his danger. It is no kindness for us to skip over Romans 1 and 2 in the first part of 3 to get to the good stuff at the end of chapter 3. It is no kindness because if we don't understand our condition and the cost of our condition, then we will miss out on understanding what God has done for us in Christ. And so today we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, as we will see Paul's conclusion to his argument that humans like you and me are indeed sinful and separated from God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and he says this. He says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a very human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now in these 20 verses today, we're going to see two things that will help us understand something of our condition and something of our cost Two things that will help prepare us to finally get there to the good news of Jesus Christ next Sunday. The first thing that we see in these verses is found in verses 1 to 8, and it is this. We cannot talk our way into salvation. 
We cannot talk our way into salvation. Now, we're going to see that in verses 1 to 8. But before, again, we've done this every week, before we can really appreciate what he's going to say in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, we really need to get the full context. And to get the context of what Paul is saying in Romans 1 to 3, we have to go back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In those verses, this is what Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In those two verses, what Paul is saying is that the good news of Jesus Christ is all about sinners like you and me having the righteousness of God given to us, credited to our, our account. And it's given to us, it's credited to us, not on the basis of what we do, but merely on the basis of faith. If we would just receive the gift that is offered to us, then the righteousness of God could be credited to our account. Now, chapter 1, verse 18 goes on to explain why that is so important. It's so important because it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The reason why we need God to give us his righteousness is because we have none of it on our own. And even just a hint of unrighteousness, even just a little bit of ungodliness, is worthy of the wrath of God. The cost of our sin is the wrath of God. And because of that, we need God to intervene on our behalf. We need God to give us what we cannot earn. And that is what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. God giving to us that which we cannot earn. But Paul, before he reveals how Jesus did that, feels compelled to walk us through several arguments about how humanity really is sinful. Paul wanted to, to make this point, and, and this is, incidentally, I think this is an interesting thing that he spends so much time arguing because how many of us walked into this room without a sense that we were a sinner today? I mean, at what point in your life did you realize that you fell short of God's perfection? Probably pretty early in your life did that happen. Because it's almost self-evident that if God is holy and perfect, we're not. And we see the effects of that in our family. We see the effects of that in our, in our society. We see the effects of it in our own lives. And yet Paul goes on for two chapters and he, he argues how all of humanity is sinful. He begins in 1, 18 through 32 and he talks about how some have totally rejected God. There's a godlessness, there's a sensuality that many will pursue instead of God. He demonstrates the sinfulness of humanity that way. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he says that the sinfulness of humanity is not only demonstrated among those who... Uh, have rejected God altogether, but it's also evident in the lives of those who are merely moral. Those who have set a standard that they try to achieve, they can't even live up to their own standard, thus revealing their sinfulness. Then in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, we saw last week that it's also evident not just in the moral and not just in the godless, but also in the religious. Even those who practiced the right kind of religion, as the Jewish people demonstrated, people that had the right book could not 
follow it in a consistent way. And so because of that, Paul has argued throughout chapters 1 and 2 that all of humanity are sinful. When we get to chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, Paul is concluding that argument, and he's going to do so in what is called a diatribe style. We've seen him do this throughout chapter 2 as well, where Paul is going to argue with somebody who is articulating a counterposition to him. He did it with the moral person where he had this this dialogue back and forth with an imaginary moral person, and then he does it with a Jew at the end of of chapter 2. He's going to continue that in chapter 3, having this imaginary conversation with a Jew who's trying to talk themselves into salvation by offering up theological arguments for why God's wrath shouldn't touch them. And you know what is interesting to me about this is though our world is different, we don't live in the same Jew-Gentile world that Paul did in the first century, our world is marked by some different religious markers today. It's interesting to me that people who understand a little bit about theology spend a lot of time trying to talk themselves into salvation, try to, 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 to change God's Word in some way or find some loophole, some argument that protects them from God's wrath. When in reality, there's no way for us to talk ourselves into salvation. And Paul's going to demonstrate that in this argument he has with the Jewish man in chapter 3. He begins his, his argument, and the Jewish counterpart is going to make this point. Now, it's interesting. We need to note that Paul spent a lot of time arguing with Jewish people about Jesus Christ. So my guess is this isn't so much hypothetical as Paul is going back and replaying some game tapes of a number of conversations that he's had in the past. These were real questions that people were asking. The question he gets at the beginning of chapter 3 is this, is then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, hey, Paul, it sounds like you're saying if both Jew and Gentile are sinners, then there's no advantage to being a Jew, and that just seems wrong because... God spent 39 books giving us information, and God established us as a nation, and God gave us ceremonies of circumcision, and and God revealed His power through the prophet Elijah, and and through Moses, and through David, and, and all of these things. I mean, surely, Paul, you can't be saying that being a Jew is of no value, one of the arguments that Paul got. Paul responds, and he says, hey, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Here's what Paul is saying in response to to that that claim. Somebody says, hey, you you say there's no value in being a Jew, and Paul says, absolutely there's value in being a Jew. It just, being a Jew alone won't save you. That was his point. He says, if you're a Jew, you've received the very words of God. That's great. You grew up in a family that taught them to you. You attended uh, school where the Ten Commandments were on the wall. That was good. You grew up going to the temple and seeing sacrifices offered continually. A reminder for you not only of, of your sinfulness, but also that God could offer a sacrifice for sin, a substitute. That's valuable. There's great value in being a Jew, Paul would say. It's just not enough to save you. You might understand the principal pieces of the gospel because of your Jewish heritage, but that alone, that understanding alone, is not enough to save you. And you know what? If we 
think about that for us today, we also could say that that's true. We talked last week about how many who have grown up in a church background might also want to see value, even saving value in their church heritage, the the baptism they had when they were a child or the confirmation experience they went through in their church or just the scripture that their parents taught them at at the dining room table. Paul would say, yes, that is extremely valuable for you to have grown up in an environment where you learned about Jesus. But just having an education, just growing up in an environment is not enough to save anyone. The first argument that he is given to try to talk themselves into salvation is that, hey, surely it's valuable for us to be a Jew. And he says, yeah, it's valuable, just it takes more than that. The next argument comes in verses 3 and 4. That argument goes like this. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And here's the question that's being asked there. Hey, if, if God is not faithful to forgive the Jews and to give them salvation, then is God going to be reneging on some promises that he made? You know, God had promised to live with Israel as his people, and, and it sure sounds like, Paul, that you are saying that God is not going to make good on those promises. Well, Paul responds to that claim by saying this. He says, by no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is really what Paul is saying here. He says, what happened was the Jews rejected God. God didn't reject the Jews. And also what happened was that that God's promises were never just to one genetic composition people, but it was always to those who embraced Him in faith. That was always the way that it was. And when we look at uh, the book of Romans even, Paul is going to articulate an argument for the faithfulness of God in light of the Jews' rejection of Jesus in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we also could see that in the book of Revelation, in the the consummation of all things, that God is involved with the Jewish people at at that time. God will make good, but it was never a promise to all of those who were of genetic makeup a Jew. It was only to those who believed God in the midst of that. God helps Paul in this argument by reminding them that God is not going to be unfaithful. It's the faithlessness of men that gets us in trouble. The next argument comes in in verses 5 to 8. It says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Down in verse 7, he says in another way, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? You know, the the idea of of what was happening here, this argument that is being offered up to try to talk themselves into salvation is like, wait a minute, every time I sin, God has a chance to forgive me. And every time God forgives, he looks really good. Therefore, my sin just creates opportunity for God to look good, so why would he ever judge me for that? The, The argument might go this way, we might understand it this way, it's, the, the Jews viewed themselves like a, a piece of black velvet on which a jewel would be revealed. Only one time in my life have I gone into an expensive jewelry shop to buy a piece of jewelry. It was I was going to buy an engagement ring for my wife. 
and this was 20 years ago. I walk into this store and they, they, they lay out this beautiful piece of black velvet and they take that diamond and they set it right there on that black velvet. It, it, to this day, it's the best that ring has ever looked off of my wife's finger, all right? Um, I, I think I need to go buy some black velvet just, just to help around the house, you know, just say, hey, look at that, look at that, right? Um, the same idea is really what the argument is going here by, by the Jews. Hey, we're the black velvet. The worse we are, the, 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 the more sin that we do, the, the greater God looks because the greater he gets to forgive. It's interesting, of all the arguments that are offered, Paul doesn't even justify this one with a response. He's like, that's ridiculous. That's the Mark paraphrase. Um, he says, their condemnation is just. People are slanderously reporting that we're saying that. We would never say that. It's, it's ridiculous to think that you would do more evil so that God would look better. God needs, does not need our help to look good. And in this way, Paul works his way from chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, showing us that we cannot talk our way into salvation. Now, in the first century, there were Jews who might have tried to do that, but I believe today there are people in Christian backgrounds who also want to try to talk their way into salvation. They want to try to come up with a theological loophole that protects them, anything apart from trusting Jesus. They want to find a way to be okay. Sometimes we'll look at a a valuable upbringing. And we'll say, you know, uh, I, I, I grew up in the son of, of Dick and Bev Robinson. Surely God would not judge the son of Dick and Bev Robinson. We think, you know what, I, I grew up in East Cross United Methodist Church. I was uh, confirmed there in the sixth grade. I attended a number of Sundays. I went to vacation Bible school every summer. Surely God wouldn't judge me because that was my background. And yet this passage would say, was that valuable? Absolutely. Was it valuable for me to grow up the son of Dick and Bev Robinson? Absolutely. Incredibly valuable. Was it valuable for me to grow up attending East Cross United Methodist Church? Extremely valuable. God built into my head a number of truths that I've continued to draw on for the rest of my life. But was that experience enough to save me? No. That's Paul's argument here. We can't talk ourselves into salvation. Another argument you might hear is this. God wouldn't really punish people for their sins. It's not the God I know. That's not the God that's loving. He wouldn't really punish people for their sins. I mean, that would would seem to make God unrighteous in some way. I mean, God is going to be good. God is never going to judge sin anywhere, anytime, anyplace. We hear this argument have several different forms in our culture. One of the times that, uh, that this argument is, is given forth was most recently by a guy named Rob Bell, who wrote a book called Love Wins. And the basic premise of his book was that God wouldn't really judge humanity. I mean, at least not in a, in a permanent kind of a way. He wouldn't really do that. It's a reformulation of this idea that's very popular in our culture that somehow God doesn't really judge sin, certainly not mine. We try to talk ourselves into salvation in different ways. I hope that none of you have ever done this, but uh, like the Jews of his day, that we wouldn't say, 
know, wow, I, God is going to look really good by saving me. I'm going to give him such a great testimony because of all the bad things that I've done that God's really going to look good. We can't talk ourselves into salvation. Again, William Newell in his, his commentary on Romans says this. He says, thousands of so-called church members not only have never been brought under real conviction of sin and guilt and personal danger, but they rise in anger like the Jews of Paul's day when one preaches their danger directly to them. Romans 1 through 3 is danger for us. It declares our need. We need to be aware. We cannot talk our way into salvation. But the second thing we see in these verses is this. Our need is total. Our need is total. Paul begins a new section, a new movement in in verse 9 when he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He says that sin is universal. Its impacts are known by every human on the planet. It's known by those on the stage and those in the chairs. It's known by those in the church and those in the community. It's known by those in America and those around the world. The effects of sin, Jew, Gentile, and everybody in between. The effects of sin are known by all. Sin is is universal. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about this passage. He says, "The, the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, there has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line. He is not true to it. See, we are all sinners. We are all, therefore, on the receiving end of God's wrath were he not to intervene for us in Christ. And Paul is now going to, to make this argument clear by quoting a number of Old Testament passages. Now, I think it's really interesting because in chapter 3, uh, up, up to this point, Paul has not really quoted that many Old Testament verses. He's made his arguments about the sinfulness of humanity mostly, mostly based on logic and things that we could just observe in life, just things that are somewhat self-evident. We set a standard, we can't even keep our own standards. He's making those kinds of arguments all the way through these first few chapters. Um, He does that, I think, because he's writing to a Gentile audience who wouldn't have been familiar with the Old Testament. But after showing through life and experience that all are sinners, Paul now is going to make a mixtape of the greatest hits of man's sinfulness in all of the Old Testament. And he's going to play them for us from chapter, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, so that all of us would understand that sin is not a new thing. Sin is an old thing. And from the very beginning, when God opened his mouth and began to reveal to us a special revelation, he, he talked about mankind's sinfulness. And as he does so, he's going to make a variety of, of points about sin. From verses 10 to 12, he's going to quote a number of psalms And he's going to talk about the universal effects of sin. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The point there is that all are sinners, that all have fallen short of God's glory. His point is not that every person is as bad as they could be. His point is that everybody has fallen short of God's standard. There is no one who is righteous. And since the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, we've seen both our condition and its cost. We don't need a lot of evidence to that or additional evidence because we live in a world that is marked by sin. We're aware of the universal effects of sin. When you leave today, go home and talk to your, to your family and they can point out to you where you fall short of the glory of God. Uh, go home and talk to your roommates and they can let you know where you're selfish. Uh, we don't need all of these arguments to understand the basic point. Sin's effects are universal. Incidentally, you probably also are aware of the sinfulness of those around you. Um, It's just the way that it is. After talking about the universality of sin, verses 13 and 14, he talks about how there's this pipeline between our hearts and our mouths when we open our mouths, out pours the contents of our heart, and many times what comes out is something that is hurtful to others, revealing that there is sin on the inside of us. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. James in the New Testament would go so far as to say if somebody can live their life without sinning in what they say, then they would be perfect because it is so easy for us to sin in what we say. All of us have had the experience of opening our mouth and out comes something that we know immediately we shouldn't have said because it tears down our brother, it tears down our sister. We can see it hanging there in the cloud like a cartoon outside of our face and we wish we could erase it or pull it back in, but we can't. Those moments, those experiences are reminders to us that we are sinful. And on the inside of us is corruption that needs deliverance. He talks about what's happening from our mouths. He he also talks in verses 15 to 17 about what we do with our hands and with our feet. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Since we are people who live in a land of sinners, we know this is true. This set of verses helps us make sense of our society, doesn't it? We live in a place without peace many times. We live in a world without peace. We live in a world that is one-upping and tearing down each other again and again and again. Sin has entered into our hearts, it's entered into our lives, and it has fractured our relationships, and it's felt by anybody who lives in society, and it's felt by anyone who looks in the mirror. We're able to see our sinfulness and our actions. And then lastly, verse 18, he he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Not only are their relationships horizontally broken, the Old Testament says, but also our relationship vertically is broken. Our relationship with God is broken because of sin. Our attitudes, our actions, our reverence of Him is destroyed because of sin. Paul concludes this section, he concludes this this argument, 
And he says this in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I think what Paul is saying in in verse 19 is he wanted to protect the Jews from assuming and articulating that these verses must have been talking about somebody else. It would have been common for a Jew of that day to hear these verses and go, that's talking about that Gentile that lives down the street from me. Certainly not talking about me. And what Paul says is, you who have received the law are under the law and you can't keep the law, therefore these verses are talking about you. Very often, it's our temptation to want to apply passages about sin to our neighbor, to our friend, to our spouse, to our kids. Verse 19 is given so that we would not do that. These verses apply to us. We are sinners in need of deliverance. Verse 20 Paul concludes and says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The idea is that our condition of sinfulness is so significant, it cannot be overcome by our adherence to a moral standard or to God's law. We can't do it. We've already committed unrighteous acts, therefore the wrath of God is already stored up to be revealed against us. There's no way out on our own. The way out must come from another means than by adherence to the law. And that's something we're going to see next week. What we've seen in this passage up to this point is we've seen our condition as sinners. And we've seen the cost of that sin, which is the wrath of God being revealed against us. Now, that's important because as we grow up, part of maturity is understanding that things cost something. I remember when our son was, was very, very young, we would take him to a store and he had no sense that things cost something. He would see something shiny and he would just grab it and, and he would just want to take it. And we had to, to train him, hey, no, no, that's not the way this works. And so as he matured, he began to realize that taking something at the store involved us making a payment for that something, but he didn't really have a sense for what that cost. So he might want to grab something really expensive and then look at us like, give him the card, give him the money. There's that sense. And you know what? That is a condition that is, many have carried with them into their 30s and 40s, uh, a failure to understand that taking things costs something. But maturity in life is demonstrated when we understand the value of what we would take. And I think the reason why it's important for us to to walk through all of chapters 1 through 3 is it's important for us to understand that our condition of sin has a cost that is enormous. And that cost is the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And if we do not understand the massive cost that our sin created, then we will never understand the cross of Christ. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he died to take all of the wrath of God for your sin and mine and to absorb it upon himself so that his righteousness might be given to us. If we don't understand the cost of our sin, we will never understand what Jesus did on the cross. Because on the cross, he took God's wrath for us. Now, after four weeks of this, 
you might be sitting there in your seat going, are we there yet? Almost. Next Sunday, we're going to come back and we're going to explore God's good news. What he has done for us in Christ demonstrated in HD living color from 321 to the end of chapter 3. And I'm so excited for us to get there. But if you are here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, don't wait for next week to do that. Right now, where you sit in this place, you can trust in Christ and see Jesus' death 2,000 years ago be the focus of God's wrath concerning your sin so that you might be forgiven and free and you might have a relationship with God. And that relationship can begin right now. You can join me in this prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the the privilege and the opportunity of knowing you and the privilege of, of you entrusting to us this knowledge that we are sinful. Because, Father, if we didn't understand that we were sinful, we might think that we're okay and we have no problem. But, Father, because you have shown to us through our conscience and through the Word, you've shown us our sinfulness. Father, we understand that, that we need um, your righteousness extended to us. Father, thank you that, that you have, have offered that in a glorious and a spectacular way by sending Jesus on the cross to absorb all of your wrath towards our sin so that we might be forgiven. And Father, I pray today if there is anyone here who is still sitting in their own sin, still experiencing both the cost and the condition of their own sin, that Father, today they would trust in you, they would embrace your gift of life in Christ, and they would, they would see their, their eternity transformed from one awaiting wrath and judgment to one awaiting eternal life. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would give the faith in this room to the hearts that need it and that all of us would be clinging and embracing to Jesus Christ today for our hope for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.